This is Radio Orbit, exploring the secrets of everything on KOPN 89.5 FM, Columbia. Good morning to you, or good day to you, wherever you might be. If you're not listening to this show live, if you're listening over the web after the fact, this is Mike Hagan, and you're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN 89.5 FM, Columbia, Missouri. And uh, this is your source, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk, music of the world. It's more than radio. It's community radio. It's KOPN, your imagination station, and you're listening to it right here. Radio Orbit every Monday night, 11 until 2. And uh, 
Here we go. We've got a cool show tonight. Very excited about it. Actually, a little bit different than I was planning, and I'll tell you about it in a minute. Uh, but a quick thanks to Debbie Johnson finishing up the wonderful series Aurora on Free Range Radio Theater. Really cool stuff that Debbie's been doing for the last few weeks. <clears throat> and uh, certainly more of that to come. Always neat stuff uh, on the program that precedes mine. And I, I say it all the time, but I'm really excited to be following Debbie's show because uh, the transition from her show uh, to my show I think is a really good one because I think there's some really, uh, the audiences out there might be, uh, might be compatible for both of those shows. So anyway, hopefully some of you people that are out there listening to Debbie's show stick around. Uh, tonight I was going to do open lines and talk about uh, this conference that was uh, that went on yesterday, the Meta History Conference that Joanne uh, Joanna Harcourt Smith and I spoke about last week, and uh, that conference went from one o'clock until five o'clock yesterday afternoon, and it was a global event. It was set, centered out of Santa Fe, New Mexico, is where the uh, where the broadcast was from, but there were people participating from 15 or 20 different countries and uh, from uh, about a third of the states here in the United States. So it truly was a global event, and uh, they had a live chat going on for uh, uh, the uh, input of the participants from around the world. If you had a question, for example, you could send them an ins instant message, and within a minute, uh, if it was a reasonable question, it was probably read. Uh, on the air and discussed between a, a group of amazing people. And so anyway, really cool stuff. And I recorded the whole thing, and it was called Our Future Beyond History. And uh, again, just a bunch of forward-thinking people asking questions about, uh, not about where we've been, but where we're going and how we're going to get out of this mess that we're in. Uh, so anyway, uh, that event was really cool, and I recorded it, and I will try to do some editing on it and air... Uh, sections that I find relevant and significant uh, that I can share with you guys. So we'll do that sometime in the future. I was thinking about doing a an open line show tonight so we could discuss uh, the event and some of the things that were talked about because I know that there are a number of uh, my listeners that were uh, participating in the event as well <clears throat> because you contacted me beforehand. Hopefully you guys enjoyed it as much as I did and uh, got something out of it. And I actually got an idea for a couple of interviews out of it. Actually, uh, John Lash, uh, Joanna Harcourt Smith's partner over at MetaHistory.org, uh, he's already agreed to be on the show, um, and he and I have spoken uh, in the past. But uh, Jeremy Narby, somebody who I was really impressed with yesterday, Dr. Jeremy Narby, he's a uh, uh, an evolutionary biologist and, a, and a, uh, an ethnobotanist from Stanford University. And... Uh, He's written a couple of books, actually, that I've read, but I just hadn't really thought about interviewing Jeremy. And it turns out that he's a friend of Jonathan Miller Weisberger's down in uh, Guaria de Osa, down in Costa Rica. And, of course, I've spoken with Jonathan before. And uh, Jeremy Narby has participated in some of the events down there at, uh, in Costa Rica at, at Jonathan's uh, botanical sanctuary down there. What a cool place, by the way, uh, Guaria de Osa, down in the Osa Peninsula of Costa Rica, down there on the, uh, on the Pacific coast. Of Costa Rica. So, at any rate, uh, Jeremy Narby, somebody I'd like to talk to, I think, in the future. And uh, Nina Simons uh, just did a wonderful job. And anyway, some really cool stuff. Uh, and like I say, I'll try to get that to you in the future here, at least parts of it that I think are cool. All right, tonight, uh, so instead of doing open lines, we're going to have Dr. Michael Heisen. Uh, for people who have been listening to the program 
uh, well, pretty much from the early days, you'll be familiar with Dr. Heisen because he was on the program back in uh, early November of last year. Uh, but for those of you who are new listeners uh, and who didn't have a chance to hear that uh, previous show with Dr. Heisen, he is a Ph.D. neurobiologist and also holds a doctorate in marine biology. He runs an institute in Puna, on the Puna coast of Hawaii, called the Sirius Institute, S-I-R-I-U-S, as in the star Sirius. And uh, the Sirius Institute is... Um, primarily interested in bridging the communication gap between humans and cetacea, dolphins and whales. And uh, he has made tremendous progress following in the traditions of Dr. John Lilly. And we'll probably talk about Dr. Lilly tonight a little bit. We always do whenever we talk about dolphins and whales. It's hard not to mention uh, John Lilly. Um, but uh, at any rate, uh, Dr. Heisen, uh, a student and a protege of Dr. Lily's uh, Dr. Lilly died back in 1999, but uh, was very supportive and uh, helpful in Michael's work. And uh, Michael was sort of uh, used Dr. Lilly to sort of set his compass and how he's moved forward with the work. And he's really done some amazing things. And we're going to be talking about dolphins and communication and language and, believe it or not, space travel and new, incredible, interesting ideas about propulsion and uh, and also space colonization, and believe it or not, all of these top uh, all of these topics uh, dovetail with one another, even though they may sound like they don't right now. So, anyway, check it out. Dr. Heisen is uh, an amazing, forward-thinking, brilliant guy, and he's going to be with us live from Hawaii, along with uh, Paradise Newland. And uh, Paradise is uh, Dr. Heisen's associate and partner, and uh, she uh, adds sort of a different aspect to the work, uh, more of a mystical spiritual side I guess uh, is probably the best way to put it quickly in other words Michael is sort of the uh, the intellectual side of it he's got all the right initials at the end of his name and uh, been to all the right institutions and uh, all that sort of thing so he he gains the respect of the science community uh, paradise works on different levels and uh, has amazing experiences and stories and uh, teachings of her own to share with us. So uh, anyway, Dr. Michael Heisen and Paradise Newland uh, coming up in about 50 minutes live from Hawaii. So uh, so that's coming up. <clears throat> and um, the meta history stuff, uh, we'll just have to wait. Like I said, we'll share it later. And we'll do an open line show here in the next few weeks. Although I'm looking at the schedule here and it's like, it's going to be hard to do that. So we've got to find out a way. I'm telling you, you know, my friend Pat is here in the studio with me, and, and he's laughing over there. And I've been th it's driving me crazy because I need more time. I need another day a week or, or something. We need to find a way. Uh, I mean, and maybe you guys out there are saying, no, one day a week is too much already. <laughs> but... Um, but I have a lot of material, and it's always a struggle to decide what I'm going to talk about uh, on, on one particular night or another. And there's a bunch of stuff last week that I wish that I could have talked about, and now a week later it's obsolete. There's other stuff now, you know, that I want to talk about, and so you can't talk about the stuff that's a week old, and then you have to decide about the new stuff, and there are all these different guests uh, that we're lining up now. And um, anyway, so I, I just wish that uh, I had an opportunity to do the show more frequently. Um, I think I think I think I could do it every night of the week if if uh, I think there's enough material to do that actually. But uh, at any rate, um, next week Scott Stevens will be on the air, and uh, of course he's a, the 
the uh, weather anchor for KBVR, I think, in uh, the NBC affiliate in Pocatello, Idaho, uh, the television weatherman there. And uh, but he's also has some sort of hobbies on the side uh, that we like to talk about, and we'll be talking about weather modification and weather manipulation and some of the funky things that are going on in the skies above our heads, although we may not be looking up enough to recognize them. Cam <laughs> Yeah, so anyway, uh, uh, Scott Stevens uh, also been on the show a few times, actually a couple times before, and uh, Scott was sort of my coup de gras so far. He's sort of my uh, my... Uh, my the one pin in my hat that I have because I've had it, I had him on the show a couple of times uh, and then and then he was on Art Bell's program a few weeks after he was on my show and I was like ha I scooped Art Bell yeah Mike <laughs> so anyway that's about the only scoop I've ever had so I'm really proud of it and I'm not afraid to talk about it so all right so um, next week Scott will be on the air the following week the 27th my friend Shu will be on the air with me live from Georgia and uh, Shu's real name is Ed Edwards. And uh, I I really have a difficult time describing him, so we're just going to wait and let Shu describe himself. I'll do a promo for it uh, over the next couple of weeks, though, because it's going to be an audience participation type of a program. And if you guys aren't out there listening and ready to call in and uh, uh, and participate, then it probably won't be as powerful of a show as it as it could be. Uh, Shu likes to work with what he calls subtle energy, and uh, Call it New Age Hocus Pocus. Call it whatever you want. The guy will make your hair stand on end, and he can do it at a distance. Um, and the only reason I say this is because he did it to me. The first time he did it to me was in 1998, and I was in Denver, Colorado, and uh, he was. Uh, we were uh, speaking through a chat room, one of the earlier chat rooms uh, um, on the web, and uh, he literally. Uh, from Georgia, one arm at a time made the hair on my arm stand up. First my left arm, and then he told me, okay, now I'm going to stop sending the energy to your left arm, and I will now move it to your right arm. And as he did that, the hair on my right arm stood literally at attention. And so that was my first experience with Shu, and I was turned on to him by my friend Kent Stedman, of course, who's been on the air. And Kent told me a long time, he's like, yeah, this guy, Shu, is my friend. He said he's a real strange bird, uh, but he can do all kinds of bizarre things. And um, he said that uh, uh, that this movie, Phenomenon, if you remember, there was a movie with John Travolta uh, about this guy that was hit by lightning and then had all the uh, supernatural powers or something afterward. Uh, that movie was loosely based on the life of Shu, uh, although Shu's much more astounding than anything that was shown in that movie. Uh, uh, so hopefully um, he lives up to it, and uh, you guys are going to have to be able to participate in order for him to prove that he can do the things that he says he can do. Um, so keep that in mind a couple weeks. Uh, keep your phones handy uh, and in bed with you if you're sleeping or whatever, but... Uh, Make sure you uh, tune in and listen to the show with Shu coming up in two weeks, all right? Um, the 4th of July, I don't know, so far that's an open weekend, so maybe that's a chance to do open lines. Uh, the following week, Jay Widener, uh, and uh, we've got uh, Michael Horn coming up sometime in July, I think the 18th, that's scheduled for. He's a 30-year investigator of the Billy Meyer UFO story, the old farmer from Switzerland who's still to this day, after 30-some years, has yet to be 
debunked. One of these classic UFO stories that we that we have to cover because I've never done done that. So we'll talk about Billy Meyer and his story coming up in a few weeks. Uh, John Lash, of course, I mentioned uh, from the Meta History Conference and from MetaHistory.org. Nick Cook, uh, who's been on the program before, the author of The Hunt for Zero Point, uh, who was the aviation editor for Jane's Defense Weekly, the preeminent aerospace intelligence and technology magazine on the planet. Uh, he was the aerospace editor, the aviation editor at Jane's for 15 years and uh, still does work for Jane's. He now does most of uh, his, uh, spends most of his time writing and doing his own research and investigations. And uh, if uh, you remember the interview that we had with Nick, we talked about anti-gravity technology and some of these other exotic pr- uh, propulsion and energy develop- developments that are that are occurring and are getting some attention on the fringes, uh, but have not yet made it onto the radar of the mainstream and are still being being very, very uh, strongly uh, defended against uh, in the mainstream establishment sciences. And there's a lot going on, and Nick has a lot to talk about, and it will actually dovetail with some of the stuff that Dr. Heisen is going to talk about tonight, because one of the things that we're going to be talking about tonight is energy and uh, propulsion technology. And uh, an associate of Dr. Heisen's named Nassim Haramein, who... Uh, is going to be on this program. In fact, he should have been on by now, but we have just had such a difficult time uh, in communicating with one another to get the uh, uh, the times locked down. It's just been miscommunication one after another. Some of it has been my fault, and I apologize for that. But I am going to work it out with Nassim. And um, anyway, I'm sure that uh, Dr. Heisen will will be talking about some of the stuff that uh, uh, that Nassim is uh, working with him on tonight. So. Uh, that's coming up, uh, and Nick Cook will be with us in, I don't know, sometime this summer. And then the only other big news I have about guests that are coming up is Alex Gray. And I'm really excited about this. Uh, for those of you who are interested in art, Alex Gray is a, one of the quintessential uh, artists of our time, and uh, he is of great renown. Uh, these days, actually, and has been doing wonderful work for many, many years and uh, is now uh, quite successful and in the New York scene. But anyway, uh, Alex Gray was a friend of Terrence's, uh, Terrence McKenna, and uh, expressed some of the ideas uh, that come out of the psychedelic experience and the expansion of consciousness, has been able to express some of those ideas with visual art and uh, he is an absolute master, and he's going to be on the show on September 5th. And uh, I've, been sp- I've been speaking with his wife, Allison. And uh, anyway, I'm just totally psyched about it, and it gives us an opportunity to get involved in the art scene. And, you know, I talk a lot about the, the creative impulse on this program and about the imagination and about how important I think it is uh, to push the envelope of creativity and to push the envelope of imagination right now. And uh, Alex Gray is someone who can really uh, help us do that and help move the show into into into, into new uh, exciting areas as well. You know, we we talk about lots of different things on this show, and I try to mix <clears throat> music into the show because music is a part of it, but all of art is a part of it. Dance and music and painting and uh, writing, 
So all of these things are uh, a part of the creative and are all results of the human imagination, the divine imagination. And artwork like Alex Gray's will catalyze your imagination. And uh, it's amazing stuff, and I'm really proud to have him on the show uh, coming up in September. All right, so uh, that's basically what's going on. Uh, the email address here, orbitradio at AOL.com, O-R-B-I-T-R-A-D-I-O at AOL.com. The website, of course, www.radioorbit.com, just one O in the middle there, R-A-D-I-O-R-B-I-T.com. And, of course, all of the previous programs are archived up there on the web if anybody uh, falls asleep or if you want to make a copy of one of the programs and give it to a friend or whatever. Uh, you can go to the website at radioorbit.com and then just go over to the archives, and uh, all of the shows are listed there in Windows Media format right now, uh, but I'm trying to uh, improve the interface uh, uh, of these files, and I think I'm going to convert them to MP3s, um, and I think that will make people happier. So uh, anyway, I'm working on that, but the techie stuff is not my... Uh, particular cup of tea and uh, I'm trying to do my best at learning how to do this stuff so stick with me and uh, bear with me and uh, hopefully that stuff will get better All right. but anyway they're up there and if you have Windows Media Player it's no problem you can play them right now as they are alright um, what else okay the phone number here in the studio just if you have anything to mention uh, during a break or whatever um, maybe I'll give something away somebody calls me I don't know uh, 443-8255 is not the number that I wanted to give you, so forget that one. Uh, it's area code 573-874-5676 or 1-800-895-5676. Okay, if you're in the 573 area code, 874-5676 or 1-800-895-5676. We will um, be back in a minute. Let's play some music here get things going and we'll come back do space weather i got a few stories to sort of set up our guest tonight i'll get dr heisen on the phone in uh, a little while here and we will do it up all right this is mike you're listening to radio orbit on kopn and uh, these are the cars i've been having sort of a blast from the 80s past lately if you haven't noticed so uh, I'll, tr- I'll try to mix in uh, some current stuff with this cool old stuff. But just check it out. I love it. Life is moving Life is It's 
Hey, this is Mike, and uh, you're listening to KOPN Radio Orbit. And um, it's just about 11:30, and we do this every Monday from 11 until 2 a.m. in the morning. And as I said just before the break, uh, my guest tonight is Dr. Michael Heisen, uh, my friend from Puna, Hawaii, a, uh, a Ph.D. marine biologist and neurobiologist. And we're going to be talking about dolphins and the ocean. And what a wonderful place it is in the water. <laughs> and uh, I got a couple guests in the studio tonight, so if you hear some chatter in the background, don't sweat it. We've got a little in-house uh, studio uh, concert going on or something like that, I guess. So anyway, I appreciate um, my friends coming down to listen and uh, everybody out there that's listening tonight, too. So all right, let's do space weather real fast. And then I got a couple stories I want to mention before... Uh, I get Dr. Heisen on the line here, but uh, a couple of big old flares yesterday on the 12th, and we'll, we'll have to see what happens in the next couple of days, but uh, the sun got pretty excited uh, yesterday, and there are two pretty big sunspot areas that are that are transiting the front side of the disk right now, uh, 775 and 776, for those of you who care about the nomenclature, but uh, uh, regardless, they kicked up a couple of big flares that that resulted in coronal mass ejections that, of course, um, can do all kinds of interesting things to the planet Earth's magnetic field. So around the 14th or the 15th, we'll see uh, if there's any significant results. If you have any problems with shortwave uh, communications, that's something that's typical when these things happen up to big things like electrical grids being knocked out and things of that nature so uh, the last time this happened here in Columbia it was funny because the following day uh, a bunch of people were uh, talking about their garage doors opening and and their car door locks not working right and music players starting in rooms where no one was and all this sort of stuff and and uh, it was because of the solar activity so as I've said many times on this program the Sun is the heart of the system that we live in. It is The sun is 99.9% of the mass and energy of our entire solar system. It affects everything profoundly. And uh, whether you are perceiving that effect or not is another story. Um, but uh, when the sun burps, it affects everything uh, in this entire system. So... That's why we like to talk about the sun and make sure we keep our eyes on Old Soul up there because uh, it's a fun hobby for me as well. So, okay, big sunspots, like I say, number 775 and 776, they both have these sort of uh, writhing, uh, unstable, twisting magnetic fields. And when those things happen, that's when we get these potentials for big flares and prominences and the things that I get excited about when the sun starts to get active. So I'll be watching that. And, of course, if you're up in the upper latitudes and you're listening to the show after the fact uh, on the web, um, you'll get some wonderful auroras over the next couple nights probably. So uh, that reminds me also today I saw like what they call a sun halo. And even on a warm day, it will remind you that there's very cold, cold things going on up in the upper parts of the atmosphere because when you see the sun 
uh, with a halo around it. It's basically these ice particles in the atmosphere that uh, sort of refract the sunlight and uh, bend it around the outskirts, and so it appears that uh, the sun has sort of a bright halo around it, and you can see that all the time around here in Missouri in the summertime. All right, uh, last thing, potentially hazardous asteroids. Uh, you know, cosmic interlopers that sometimes cross paths with the Earth. Uh, there are a few of note coming up in the next couple of months, but uh, these are, of course, ones that have been identified as Earth crossers. And an Earth crossing asteroid means nothing more than at some point during the course of its orbit, uh, it, its orbit crosses the Earth's orbit. It doesn't mean that the Earth is necessarily there when it crosses the orbit. Uh, there can be Earth crossers that cross the orbit of the Earth all the time, but never actually cross the orbit when the Earth is there. And that's, of course, what we want to avoid, if at all possible. Uh, but uh, lots of asteroids out there, lots of uh, interesting bodies that fly around this big solar system and galaxy of ours. And, and uh, it's a very, very dynamic, interesting place. And lots of things are happening all the time. So anyway, keep your eyes to the skies. All right? Um, I think we're going to play another quick piece of music here. I'm going to get Dr. Heisen on the horn, and he can uh, listen to the last part of the uh, of the first hour here so he knows where we're going. And then we'll be back uh, to do a couple stories before I bring him on the air, all right? Okay, uh, let's do that. This is Bright Eyes from I'm Wide Awake. It's morning, and the song is called Lua. I'll be back in a minute. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN. Painted black. 
We're running a little short on time, uh, but let me just quick say a couple of things here. We've got Dr. Heisen on the phone. We'll have him with us uh, and Paradise Newland as well in just a few minutes here, probably 15 minutes or so. In the meantime, here's a couple stories. I was going to read a story about a bunch of new sea creatures that have been discovered, a story from Singapore uh, that some scientists have discovered, a whole bunch of new species of sea creatures that they had uh, never seen before and in addition found uh, a number of species that they thought were gone. So uh, I won't read the whole article, I'll just paraphrase, but the bottom line is that, as always, uh, we don't know a whole lot about some of the things that we act like we do. There's so much going on in the sea that we don't understand, uh, including uh, the biology, geology, uh, history, I mean, all kinds of things that we don't understand, really. So anyway, uh, always more surprises if you look for them. And the sea is fathoms deep, folks. You know, we live on the surface, and there's only two dimensions here, and we only have X amount of space, and we can measure it in square meters. But uh, when you go out into the depths of the seas, all of a sudden, space becomes much much greater and all kinds of things change and for those of you uh, who can appreciate this firsthand if there are any other divers out there uh, it is an astounding experience uh, the first time and every time I think that you go underwater and uh, 
and move around in those environments uh, comfortably, you know, with breathing apparatus so you don't have to worry about getting a breath, uh, but you can actually go and explore. Uh, it is absolutely something else. I've had some of the most profound experiences of my life underwater. And uh, maybe we'll talk about that sometime. And I'm sure Dr. Heisen has had some too. Maybe we can actually chat with him about that. There's a lot of people that actually have uh, phobia about the water. And it's a, uh, an interesting thing actually to me because uh, the human body is water. And the whole basis of life as we know it, at least on this planet, is based on liquid water. <clears throat> and it's something that life cannot exist without, at least, as I say, not as we know it. So anyway, we'll talk about some of this stuff coming up, but uh, the ocean's full of surprises, as always. Uh, here's a little story uh, from ABC News. It was originally from Nature.com, uh, a pretty well-respected scientific magazine. And this shows you what the mainstream does uh, to, to, uh, to, to reasonable pieces of uh, of research and of writing. Anyway, they, they, I'm going to read you what ABC cut uh, out of, and what they, well, not what they cut out, but what they ended up with. And this is a little uh, story here. Uh, dolphin moms teach daughters tools of the trade. Researchers say a group of dolphins living off Western Australian coast teach their offspring to protect their snouts while foraging for food. Marine biologists suspect the dolphins from Shark Bay in Western Australia use sponges torn off of the seafloor to avoid getting stung by stonefish and other creatures. An international team has been investigating whether the behavior is inherited or learned. The researchers have told the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that they now believe the behavior is a passed-down one from mother to daughter. They say this type of cultural behavior has never been observed before in a marine species. Humans and chimpanzees are the only other species where it has been proven that they have learned rather than uh, genetically inherited the ability to use tools. Um, now I could talk for a long time just on that article alone. Uh, let me tell you, it was a it's it's a it's a major oversimplification. First of all, uh, I think Dr. Heisen and Paradise can talk to us about uh, learned behaviors <laughs> and dolphins, and it's not uh, it's not a big secret at least not in their world, uh, the dolphins uh, are, can not only teach their own kind, but they can teach us a few things too, as we're going to find out here. So uh, at any rate, that, that uh, couple of short paragraphs was, was cut from a much, much bigger piece that was re relatively well done, but again, I think uh, just, a, just a, a major understatement of what's really going on here. And uh, so... That's something that we'll be talking about, hopefully, with our with our guests in just a little while here as well. Um, what else did I want to mention? Oh, you know, there was something that was on my mind just a second ago, and I was thinking I should probably bring that up, but now, of course, it has flown. Lost in the ether. Yeah, it's back in the back in that land of imagination again. So, anyway. Um, I've got one more thing that I think that I'll read as sort of a setup uh, for Dr. Heisen and for Paradise. It's a piece that I found sort of synchronistically on the web just yesterday, and it's written by uh, another uh, pretty amazing guy. His name is Howard Bloom, and uh, he's sort of a scientist and a poet and a writer and does a lot of different things. But Howard Bloom is um, sort of thinking along the same terms as I am these days and 
maybe uh, dovetails with some of the stuff that uh, Dr. Heisen is going to speak uh, speak with us tonight about. So, anyway, uh, let me do this, and it's going to take a few minutes because I want to re- I want to read a good uh, a good chunk of this. You can get a good feel for what it is, and then uh, we'll do one more piece of music before the top of the hour, and then we'll come back with our guests. Okay. All right. Uh, this is called "What Is the Tango." And uh, that's the title of this piece, and it comes from a website that's called Big Bang Tango. So if you go to BigBangTango.net, I think it is, you can check out this work by Howard Bloom, and it's a pretty cool website as well. So, But anyway, here's how it goes. In Frankfurt, Germany, a Russian physicist thinks that he spotted a sociology of basic particles. Now he wants to talk to photons. In Tel Aviv, Israel... A physicist microbiologist has been studying bacterial colonies and thinks he sees a linguistic pattern, a Chomskyite deep structure, a language in the communication between single-celled beasts. In a paper published in a leading journal of physics, Physica A, the same Israeli, the same Israeli physicist has made an even more shocking claim that bacterial colonies have consciousness. In Moscow, a mathematician-slash-physicist at the Kedish Institute of Applied Mathematics of the Russian Academy of Sciences has been pondering quantum mechanics and has concluded that electrons and photons have to make decisions. They have to make up their minds. And in New York City, the founder of a field called paleopsychology thinks that there are common threads between the German sociology of quantum mechanics, the Russians' emperor's electrons, and the Israelis' sentences spoken chemically by bacteria the Israelis' bacterial mass mind, and the mass passions aroused by superstars of human culture and of history, from Michael Jackson to Prince to Hitler to Osama bin Laden. In modern science, all of this should be viewed as blasphemy. It's anthropomorphism, clear and simple. Humans make decisions. Photons and electrons don't. Humans have language. Bacteria have no such thing. They cannot. They don't have tongues. They don't have that critical churner of words and paragraphs. A brain. The time may have arrived to remove this taboo. Those who've labored hard to purge anthropomorphism from their vocabulary may have been the real sinners. They may have been the anthropo-chauvinists in disguise. When we apply words like attraction and repulsion, words that come from human, physical, and emotional experience, to quarks, protons, and electrons, we may, simply be, we may simply be playing on a basic fact of nature. Evolution, and I mean the full sweep of evolution, from the Big Bang to, to today, is iterative and fractal. The same simple principles show up over and over again. Principles like attraction and repulsion. They are the tools of which the self-construction of the universe began. They ruled over quarks, photons, and electrons 15 billion years ago. They were the master forces of the Big Bang. The human high plateau of consciousness, emotion, language, culture, and immersion in the opinions of others is unique, but it's just another form of quark dance, one it took quarks 13.5 billion years to invent. The practical consequence, sometimes bio-patterns can help solve puzzles in physics. Sometimes clues from human psychology can help solve problems in microbiology. I'm the New Yorker mentioned above, the founder of paleopsychology. This is Howard Bloom. I call the social dance steps of the inanimate and living cosmos the Big Bang Tango, 
and the concept of the Big Bang Tango is beginning to catch fire. When the Tel Aviv physicist studying bacteria, Eshel Ben Yaakov, head of the physics department at the Raymond and Beverly Sackler Faculty of Exact Sciences at Tel Aviv University, sent a draft of his upcoming article, Reflections on Biochemical Linguistics of Bacteria, I scribbled at the usual notations in the margins. One note pointed out that the paper's facts hint that bacteria have something that strongly resembles human culture. Then I gave the reasons. Ben Jacob and his co-writers felt the comparison was accurate and, I inc and included it in their text. When the Moscow mathematician Pavel Kurakin at the Keldish Institute of Applied Mathematics sent his paper on toy quantum mechanics with hidden variables, it bristled with forbidden words. According to Kurakin's theory, a quantum particle receives queries from particle detectors. Those detectors duel for the particle's attention. Some of these pretenders receive only refuse signals. One lucky detector wins the particle's favor and is blessed with the particle's visit. In other words, there is competition and communication, a basic Darwinian twosome at work at the quantum level. How, I asked, does a quantum particle make its decision on which signal to accept? Who wins what Kurikin calls this lottery, says Pavel. Query signal intensity is proportional to psi squared. Detectors win proportional to their query intensities. Okay, now this gets a little bit, uh, a little bit uh, technical, but let me go towards the end of it here and uh, finish up here. Our aversion to anthropomorphism is arrogance in disguise. It's anthropocentrism a failure to see what we carry in us are patterns that we've inherited from 10 billion years of inanimate evolution. Evolution that built the raw material of your fingertips, your blood, your brain, Barra's, my wife's, Chris Anderson's, and mine. We woke up in the 20th century to something Aristotle once suspected, that we are all political animals. Are we clever? Yes, but we are clever beasts. Thanks to 20th century figures like Wolfgang Koehler, Paul McLean, Neil Miller, William Hamilton, E.O. Wilson, Franz de Waal, we caved in and finally fessed up to the fact that many of the things we do and feel we share with reptiles, lab rats, apes, and chimps. Hmm. Science is on the brink of yet another revelation. We share many of our human qualities with more than just our cousins. In the clan of DNA, we share these qualities with atoms, stars, and galaxies. Is this airy-fairy, new-age wishful thinking, or is it the genuine science? If it's valid, science is in for more than just a minor change. It may be on the brink of what many of its practitioners wish for consciously, but fear deep in their hearts. A cataclysmic viewpoint flip, one that could undermine the validity of their life's work. A Thomas Cunian paradigm shift. The shift is coming. I think I hear it rumbling. In fact, as the New Yorker who's been splicing these disparate strands of the Big Bang Tango together, I've staked my life on it. Now, that's Howard Bloom, uh, a scientist and a writer and an artist in New York City doing some wonderful work and uh, sort of dovetails with some of the stuff that Dr. Heisen and Paradise and I will be talking about uh, in just a few minutes. And uh, we're just about there, so let's do it. Let's play one more piece of music here. We'll come back with our guest, Dr. Michael Heisen and Paradise Newland from the Sirius Institute, Puna, Hawaii live from the Puna Coast. We'll be talking about dolphins and language and communication and space travel and E.T. and who knows what else. So stick around. Back in just a few minutes. In the meantime, this is Toad the Wet Sprocket from Fear. 
This is called Walk on the Ocean. That's what we're going to do in just a few minutes. Back in a few, Mike Hagen, Radio Orbit. We spotted the ocean at the head of the trail. Where I was going, so far away. Somebody told me this is the place where everything's better. As I said, Toad the Wet Sprocket from Fear. That's Walk on the Ocean. And uh, we're going to get right out to the ocean right now and bring my guests on the line. Uh, tonight, Dr. Michael Heisen and Paradise Newland. Uh, Dr. Heisen is a Ph.D. marine biologist and a neurobiologist and uh, has a list of credentials uh, that I don't care to go through right now because we don't have that much time. If you're interested in it, uh, you can run over to the website over at my place, uh, www.radioorbit.com. And you can click on any of the number of links on the front page there that will take you over to uh, Dr. Heisen's uh, web uh, site, planetpuna.com. And if you click on his name, uh, it will take you to his bio and his CV if you're interested in that stuff. But uh, uh, he's uh, quite 
qualified to be talking about the things that we're going to be talking tonight, and uh, as is his uh, partner and associate, Paradise Newland. So we'll talk more about that as we get him here, but uh, let's uh, just do it. Uh, Michael in Paradise, how are you guys? Aloha. Uh, there we go. I tell you, you know, persistence pays off. Yes. And as I said before, and I'm just going to get this out of the way, this had nothing to do with operator error. This was uh, solar activity and uh, and the fact that I'm calling the middle of the Pacific Ocean. That's the only reason why we had any difficulty tonight. And uh, let's get right to it. My guest, Dr. Michael Heisen and uh, Paradise Newland. You guys, thanks uh, for sticking around. So we've got you, and what do we want to talk about uh, tonight? You know, we have, you guys have been on the program before, and I actually do have a couple of notes here um, that at some point I want to ask you some questions that uh, some, previ- uh, some listeners had, had asked uh, about the previous show. Mm-hmm. And so we might ask you a couple of questions about that. And also, uh, we are at a new time now, and I have a lot of new listeners that probably didn't hear uh, much uh, or any of the of the show that we did uh, back in November. So I'm not quite sure how we want to do this. Maybe we can just do, do a, sort of a, a quick general background of what's going on there uh, in Hawaii. And then I can ask you a couple of quick questions that, that, that are uh, in reference to the dolphin uh, work that's going on. And then from there, Michael, we'll just decide uh, to go wherever, wherever we go, okay? All right. Um, let's see. I guess the, the most exciting thing that's happened very recently is that... Uh, we were filmed by a French film crew, so we can talk about that uh, for a French television program uh, called Humanimal. And we just returned from a conference in Kona called uh, Dolphins and ET Civilization right. with many speakers. Hosted by Joan Ocean and the people at Dolphinville. Yeah, yeah, I I, uh, I think I had that linked up on the website. I was I was cruising around there yesterday, looking at some of the speakers who were there and reading some of the material. And it was real interesting stuff. So I'll, maybe we can talk about that a little bit later as well. Yeah, I'm sure Paradise has her favorites as well. I was very impressed with Courtney Brown and Stanton Friedman. Okay, for All two. Right. All right, I'm familiar with with uh, uh, with Stan's work. He's been doing it for a long, long time. Um, I don't know a whole lot in depth about uh, uh, about Courtney. Is it Courtney Brown? Courtney Brown. Yes, he's been. Uh, he's got a new book called um, Remote, Remote viewing. viewing: The Science and Theory of Non-Physical Perception. Huh. Interesting. And he has some very interesting results. All right. Well, hey, um, uh, before we uh, get too deeply into that, let's do this one more time and give out the website address. Uh, if you're interested in uh, Dr. Heisen and uh, Paradise's work, you can check it out at planetpuna.com. That's P-L-A-N-E-T-P-U-N-A.com, planetpuna.com. And, of course, Puna is the lovely coast uh, of uh, the Hawaiian island that you guys are situated on and where the Sirius Institute uh, is located where you do your, uh, your work and your research. So, um, Sounds like you've been here. Michael? <laughs> well, you know, I know you keep trying to get me to come out there, and I'm going to. I mark my words. It's just a matter of, uh, well, a couple things, financial things and time and all that other stuff. But, uh, Michael, you got me all uh, excited about it. Uh, Paradise. Michael sent me an email the other day and said, Paradise wants you to move here. Uh, and then, and then, <laughs> oh, that's right. Yes, exactly. It's true, and, I do. <laughs> and, then, and then you can do the show from, uh, from Paradise. You know? Yes. I'm like, yep. yeah, that that would be that would be a, a, a dream come true. I think so. Maybe maybe down the road we'll figure out a way to, to make that happen. So, 
Yes. If nothing yeah. else, I'll come visit and we'll do a live show from uh, from the institute. So. Oh yeah. Good. Yes. And maybe someone like Aloha or Hawaiian or Island Air, one of our gracious Hawaiian airlines, um, would be happy, or even United or Delta, whoever flies from where you are to here, right. would be happy to pick up your trip and you could promote them on your radio show and. It would be our highest best outcome for all of us. Right. There you orbit go. Radio, radio, orbit. Orbit radio Live. goes into orbit. Right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. See, we got it all worked out already. So. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Cool. Well. Um, all right. So. Uh, so for the for the people who are not uh, familiar, at least uh, with the basis of your work there, um, why don't we tell them a little bit about uh, the dolphin work that's going on there and what's what's been going on uh, historically and uh, and sort of what's led to where you guys are at now. Hmm. I'll let Michael take this one. Oh, all right. Well, I'll, I'll just give a little of my personal history. Uh, clearly, the dolphins have been around humans for thousands of years, and they may have had a lot to do with our evolution. Uh, that's kind of a long story, but that's that's the overall. There's still many people that are interacting with the dolphins as they did in times past where the dolphins fish for them and things like that and guide their ships, rescue them when they're drowning perhaps, things like that. Birth babies with them? Yes. Human babies with dolphins? Yes. There's still cultures that do that, like in Hawaii here. So, and, um, hey, but, Par- Paradise, is there a historical precedent uh, for, for, the, for the birthing of human babies with dolphins? I knew that that was something that, that, that you obviously are involved in and, and, and working to, uh, to make more... Uh, known, but was there a historical precedent for that as well? Oh, yes. Um, well, for sure, we know that Hawaiians um, gave birth in local bay areas like family bays and in the water, first of all. So water birth and in rivers and stuff, um, it's a tradition. There are birthing stones and birthing pools throughout all the islands, although I've also met a man and heard him talk story about how in 1937 was the last time that he knew of. Um, his father, who helped deliver babies, as did his father's father, um, delivered a water birth with a dolphin down in the South Point area of this island. And so he said his grandfather had done it as well. And um, so we know for sure at least one absolute case where um, a family's practice was to help women have babies this way. Wow. I'm sure if we explored other Hawaiian families and other um, cultures throughout the Pacific Rim, uh, we would find a tradition of at least there being some places where this was known to happen, although um, by and large probably pretty occasionally. Um, but uh, water births directly would be more readily available for many more women, and you could do that upriver in certain places like on Maui or Kauai where they had rivers everywhere. Okay. So um, it's a common practice. The Russians did it. The Egyptians did it. I mean cultures throughout the world. Native Americans have done it, and now um, the Western world has discovered water birth and the values of water birth, and soon the values of dolphin-attended water birth. So even though we like to think we're way ahead of the curve on all these things, in many cases it seems like we're behind the curve. So <laughs> We're just coming full circle. Yeah, I suppose you know, we, so. Yeah. <laughs> all right, well, uh, yeah, so that's, uh, and, and in fact, uh, for the listeners out there, um, Paradise has her own personal story uh, of a water birth of her son, Tiger. Uh, oh, um, actually, it's my son, Kehena. Oh, I'm sorry. That's right. Uh-huh. It's your, your younger son, not, your, younger not, son, yeah. not your older son. Well, um, you want to you wanna talk about that real fast? Maybe tell people uh, how, that, uh, how that whole thing occurred. We can make that uh, in, a, in sort of a quick story here. 
Oh, thank you. Um, well, it's such an integral part of my life and, and our work at the Sirius Institute because I really became interested in dolphins when I heard about dolphins and birth in the same sentence. And it's like some part of me just um, was deeply touched and moved by this and activated. And all of a sudden it's like, wow, wow, of course. <laughs> in a way, of course, that's what was missing was the whole thing of what the dolphins bring to the birth in terms of comfort and ease and connectivity and being part of all of life is what I got all of all of a sudden when I heard about this. And since then, like in the early 80s, I've dedicated my work and my life to um, bringing together a place like this, which brings us to Hawaii. Um, when I was pregnant with my first son, Tiger, we were in Vancouver. And so um, we had what we call a dolphin conscious birth, which meant that, you know, I had to be pretty much like a dolphin conscious mom to have a good birth, and it was a hospital birth and a cesarean birth. Um, but full of all the love and the connectivity that our dolphin births are all about. When my second son was coming, I was in Hawaii and um, swimming at the beach every day that I could, which was really thrilling, and occasionally being able to be in the water with the dolphins. And then one day on the shore I got a message that said my son would be born early and mid-August, and then August 18th was given and at the beach. I thought, wow, that's really cool, but that's kind of pretty early, I thought. And um, sure enough, though, August 18th, I started to um, uh, get ready to give birth. And by the end of the afternoon, I had a beautiful son born at the beach. And um, because he was coming out foot first, um, we gave birth on the shore. But at the same time, a dolphin baby was born. And I feel that in part is why I had the information from the dolphins uh, to the effect that my baby would be born there that day because oh. their baby was going to be born there that day. Okay, because I was going to ask you, you said that you got a message. Uh -huh. And I was going to ask you, what do you mean you got a message? Who would you get a message from? Well, um, to me, and, and a lot of my uh, strong affinity for the dolphins relates to my earliest experiences with them, which started out um, with a lot of telepathy. And so, as I sat on the beach after having been out in the water near them, I got a string of information, like a kind of a telegraph, if you will, and it gave me that information. Uh, that's what I mean by message. Okay. And so, long story short, you had your son right there. A dolphin gave birth simultaneously to uh -huh. to uh, a baby dolphin, and there were, if, as I remember correctly, a whole bunch of uh, uh, very happy spectators uh, with fins as well. Humans and dolphins. <laughs> there were hundreds of dolphins, and there were actually about maybe 12 to 15 people around us, including um, the lady who delivered him, who is an experienced delivery room nurse. This was her first natural birth at the end, and after the end of a very long um, career. Well, it must have blown her mind. It must. It did. It totally blew her mind. And she was so elated, and it was a good thing we had her there because she knew how to turn, you know, a footling birth, which mm. was a pretty rare occurrence. But in terms of birthing difficult births, um, set and setting always is so important mm. when we're getting ready to, to let the baby be born. And so in some way my child was going to come in foot first, the most relaxing, comfortable, beautiful place I could have uh, been on really was that beach, surrounded with these wonderful people whom I completely entrusted myself with and the birth of this child. And it turned out so perfectly well, um, which was good. It's for us to really get back into trusting nature and trusting ourselves in our process of creating life. Wow. 
I agree fully. And I think it's the coolest thing, Michael. I remember when, when uh, Paradise related this story to us the first time you mentioned how you were out there swimming and about how the sound uh, and the tones uh, oh, yeah. of the dolphins singing themselves was so much that was overwhelming because they were just so uh, ecstatic and happy about right. this whole event that was going down. It was the most amazing communication I'd ever heard out in the bay there. They were on the order of 300 dolphins, and they had just filled the bay with sound, and there was so much sound power that you could pull your head about a foot and a half above the water and feel the ultrasonics skipping across the water at about a foot over the water, oh my which God. is very rare. They yeah. were very loud. Incredible. <laughs> yes, I think they were very happy. <laughs> well, I can imagine why. It sounds like it, August 18th must, must have been quite a day uh, back then. So. Yeah. All right, so uh, for the people out there listening, this gives you uh, uh, a little bit of a, of a framework to see why these people are doing what they're doing. These things are based on personal experience with these uh, these creatures, these animals, these sentient beings that are out there uh, swimming around in the oceans and are, are, are our partners out there, whether we uh, recognize them as such or not. And um, the, the work uh, has continued, obviously, and uh, you have had revelation upon revelation. And yeah. uh, and so here we are today. And so tonight we'll be talking about some of the most uh, most recent uh, and uh, uh, exciting of, of of these revelations, I guess. So, all right. Well, I'm glad that we got to do that. That gives people a rough idea. Um, now, all and and Michael, we'll definitely have to talk about. Uh, I want to make sure that people understand that this is a scientific operation that's going on there as well. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, Mike, Michael's credentials speak for themselves, but uh, as we get going here, you'll you'll hear much more technical talk. Uh, but uh, Paradise has certainly had uh, the experiential side of it that uh, that just blew everyone away. So, well, I I want to praise Paradise's background as well. She's one of the few people that know all the things I know, and uh, more. And uh, she's been very accommodating and and patient with the uh, scientist skeptic hat. <laughs> <laughs> Very well, I think I, I think that you guys make a great team, and I think that, that that it takes both of those sides in order to sort this stuff out. Mm -hmm. you, you know, one of, one of the things that I was talking about today, I had a friend of mine. We were talking about information and and how in in the in the old days the problem was we didn't have enough information, and now we have so much information that it's overwhelming and that it, it, it requires a tremendous amount of effort to sift through it. And so when you have a couple of people that with uh, coming at things from sort of different uh, angles like you two do, I think they really complement one another. Yes, indeed. Yeah, It, it complemented my laboratory stuff, certainly with field experience, they might say. Mm -hmm. I found out, for example, that a, a woman that's ready to give birth is like a primal force of nature, and you have only two choices, either help or get out of the way. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's, that kills me. You know, we've talked about this before, but I have a young son who's about 20 months old now. And, you know, Paradise, he was a breech baby, too. Uh-huh. And he came out feet first as well. And uh, But at any rate, you're absolutely right about that, Michael. I would have never guessed that before, but I know it now. <laughs> and I appreciate it. Trust me. Yeah. Uh, so, okay. Um so on to the dolphins. What's uh, what's the latest? Actually, let me ask you a quick question here before okay. we go to break. Um, I had a number of people that were really interested in the healing 
work that you guys were researching. In, uh, in particular, cerebral palsy and Down syndrome. I had uh, uh, a listener who has a young uh, child with Down syndrome, not a serious case of Down syndrome, but Downs mm-hmm. nonetheless, none, nonetheless and, and they heard the initial program that we had done and were very interested uh, by what you had talked about, so they asked if I, would a- if, if I could ask you uh, to maybe expand on that a little bit. Oh, certainly. Um, yeah. Okay, why don't, we, why, don't, why don't we do that, and then, uh, okay. then we can take a break after that. So. Okay. Um, well, just to give a quick background, I started in Illinois, read John Lilly's books, and then ended up at the University of Miami um, working on a master's and met Hank Truby, who was John Lilly's linguist, mm-hmm. when they were teaching the Dolphins English about 1968. Right. This is 30, and, uh, 30 years ago now. Nearly. And Truby was the first to take autistic children to see the Dolphins and demonstrate their healing abilities. And since then, there have been tests of upwards of... Uh, 400 some conditions and some of the ones that have shown good results are autistics uh, down syndrome and cerebral palsy and microcephaly and microcephaly right hmm. um, but I've got direct experience with the um, uh, cerebral palsy through a, uh, a little girl that was from my hometown of Winnebago Illinois mm-hmm. and we uh, they went to see the dolphins at uh, Nathanson's group at Dolphin Research Center in Florida near Grassy Key or Marathon and after about a week in the in the water with the dolphins um, this cerebral palsy of afflicted little girl who was had a, about age eight uh, had a mental age of about three to four months and her mother told me after this week with the dolphins that her mental age had increased to three and a half years or so my god so functionally it was a major change um, there are other similar stories of people severely autistic that have uh, yet to speak and sometimes come up with their first words either during or shortly after they've been with the dolphins. Hmm. Are, are, um, the, are these changes permanent? Yes. Wow. And so they usually go on. Yes. It initiates the process of, you know, more interaction, more awareness, more soundness coming through. So it's sort of like kickstarts, in other words. It, mm-hmm. it kickstarts something. So, so, Michael, this is where the... Where, where the Well, okay, we haven't gotten to it yet, but the speculation or the ideas of what the mechanism of this is 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 DNA, I guess, right? That could be, yes. And before I get into this, I just want to mention that uh, there was a a program called Sightings that showed a Down syndrome child Mm -hmm. that had been with the dolphins for about two years, and he was performing at normal levels. So that's at least one case there. Wow. So, yes, it's quite a puzzle on how exactly they may do this. Briefly, they can put out about a horsepower worth of sound if they want to. Um, that's enough power to, say, turn the water to steam at about eight feet from their beak. And so that's the kind of raw power they have if they need it. And they use that kind of thing to stun fish so they can c- collect food. They also use it for communication and healing. Right. Um, the general idea is that... Uh, Sounds like ultrasounds can change the expression of DNA. Certain genes can be turned off, and others turned on by that kind of sonic uh, input. Mm-hmm. And the other aspect is that that we know that we know for sure is that um, um, the dolphins have a structure called the melon in front of their blowhole, right, right. about a quart of special oil, mostly uh, stuff called valproic acid, but it's 
piezoelectric, much like a quartz crystal is. Right. So that when it's vibrated by the dolphin's sound, it generates an electric current. So essentially, they you might consider them radio transmitters. Right, right. Um, and the amount of they could probably put out at least a hundred watts of electric from their melon. And so you have a very complex sound field and a very complex electric electromagnetic field, both generated by the dolphin itself. And we know from Dr. Ross Aidey's work that electric fields can change gene expression, genes on Certainly. and off. Okay. So we speculate that uh, that might that's one of the things going on with dolphins and their healing ability. Um, I've written a chapter on that called um, uh, Dolphins Heal Dolphins Therapy and Autism. And if you go to planetpuna.com, put a forward slash D as in David, P as in Paul, dot HTM, it takes you to several versions of that paper. Um, it was uh, recently written up as part of Chapter 12 in Dr. Len Horowitz's book called DNA, Pirates of the Sacred Spiral. Right, right, right. Michael, um, when you mentioned that the dolphins use these abilities in combination or whatever but they use it for healing in some in some cases do yeah. they use it for healing with their own species to, for, the, for their own kind in other words if there's a sick dolphin is there a doctor dolphin for example or something or well, um, I've yet to actually have too much direct evidence on that itself however it's a long history and many stories that anytime the dolphins get in trouble they help each other mm -hmm. for example if one dolphin passes out for whatever reason the others will hold him up and uh, punch him in the stomach to help him breathe until he wakes up again. Amazing. Um, there was another case where the dolphins ran into some chemical, a chemical spill that was apparently acidic, and it was burning their skin, and they all uh, swam into a local river into the shallows and splashed water on each other to get clean. Um, things like that. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it's my, pres my presumption that, yes, they use all these abilities with each other, of course. Right, right. And... and, and and they're all capable of doing it, so you wouldn't really need any particular one that had a specialty, really. It seems like right. it's something that's probably just a, a species capability. That's true, although I, I got so many uh, stories about uh, one dolphin named Dreamer who happened to fix mm -hmm. my neck that mm -hmm. I really think she may have been kind of a specialist doctor dolphin. Interesting. I got more stories about her than any single dolphin I've heard of. <laughs> Well, and I oh. guess why not? I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, an, an intelligent individual, regardless of how they're physically expressed, I guess would have uh, certain things that they're good at and certain things that they're not. And right, uh, you know. so we speculate that there's doctors and anthropologists and sociologists and Historians dolphins and that want to talk with artists people. Artists and musician artists, yeah. dolphins. Well, we that know that. people. We know that for a fact, right? About the, about music and art, because that's uh, some of the stuff that. Uh, that you guys are making so much progress with. Mm -hmm. All right, well, that's a good little segue, I think. Let's come back and let's talk about that a little bit. Well, let's talk about what you guys are doing with music, how the communication work is coming along, and, um, uh, and then we'll go from there, okay? All right. Mm -hmm. All right, uh, we'll be back in just a minute. My guests are Dr. Michael Heisen and Ms. Paradise Newland. You're listening to Mike Hagan. This is Radio Orbit on KOPN. I think we got our act together now, so uh, we'll smooth things out and uh, enjoy this one. This is Mishka with a song called One Tree. We'll be back in just a few minutes on Radio Orbit, KOPN 89.5 FM. Africa, you're my 
and branches of one tree that's exactly right that's what we are and uh, relevant stuff from Mishka and this is Mike Hagen you listen to Radio Orbit on KOPN and I've got my friends Dr. Michael Heisen and Paradise Newland on the line with me after a little bit of difficulty early on and we're back with them and uh, we're talking about dolphins and the amazing things that our brothers and sisters out there in the oceans are capable of and how we might benefit from them and what we can learn from them and what we can do together with them. And uh, here we are. So, okay, Michael, we were talking about healing and stuff before the break. Let's talk a little bit more about uh, 
about uh, art and music and how those things tie in with communication and uh, and some of the work you're doing with that. One of the main things we've learned is that uh, the dolphins have a very complex language, and presumably the rest of the cetacea do too. Um, there's some, especially some Russian work where they looked at 300,000 vocalizations and found out that they had upwards of a trillion possible symbols. Um, one dolphin can put out four channels of sound, all different, like four click tracks, four whistle tracks, or any combination with different harmonics, different rates, all kinds of different modulations. And these are broken into units, like, um, I don't know, uh, two whistles and two click tracks mean a certain thing. We've yet to know what the meaning is, but there are syntactic units that appear throughout their vocalizations. Hmm. So from that, they were able to show that they were linguistics, or linguistic, since they follow Ziff's laws, and uh, there may be as much as a trillion symbols. How does that uh, compare relative to human speech, for example? Is it, is it, is it uh, more, less? What Compare the two. Um, Voltaire was considered to have the largest human vocabulary, and he had a working vocabulary of about 50,000 words and a recognition vocabulary, maybe uh, 100,000 words. Wow. And we're talking that they have a trillion characters or equivalent of words, something like something like that. Yes. Yes. So um, we have been working, uh, we found out that part of the communication is musical. So we've been working on a musical communication interface based on pitch tracking and MIDI. And we recently had an opportunity to test this out on Kona. Um, well, the first, Kona side. Yeah, the Kona side of uh, Hawaii. We were invited to be part, part of a documentary um, the dolphin segment of a series called Humanimal, which explores the relationship of intelligent animals and humans. Okay. They have similar um, episodes coming out about the great apes and monkeys and dogs and wolves, as well as dolphins and pigs. <laughs> anyway, we were in on the uh, dolphin part of it, and we uh, went out on boats two days in Kona, and we were able to test our hydrophone uh speaker and MIDI pitch tracking rig and it worked out really well. We were able to play music to the dolphins and uh, they were, we were able to pick up their sounds, although that day they were rather quiet. But it was a good test and uh, certainly the dolphins were enthusiastic. We had on the order of a hundred of them around the boat spinning and jumping as we went along. Alright, so, so, so the idea is to prov provoke a particular response? Um, well, one idea is to start what might be called a jam session or what we like to call an interspecies concert. Um, with the equipment properly adjusted and all that, the dolphins are able to sing to a hydrophone. We're able to turn the dolphin sounds and pitches into some other instrument, say a pipe organ or a flute, and then broadcast that out into the water so that they will know that their pitch profiles are coming out as a different sound. And at the same time, um, the human musicians can play whatever they would like in response to what the dolphins do and so on, so that we get an interactive artwork, How an interactive cool. musical composition. How cool is that? Well, we're getting ready for um, next year's Earth Day when uh, we're working to have a live interspecies concert from Earth Day and beam it out into deep space. 
um, because this past Earth Day, we sent out live whale songs for the first time ever from Earth into deep space through deep space um, network communications of Cape Canaveral. And so this is just part of, you know, gearing up and getting ready and getting that critical path together that will enable us to hold the um, concerts ahead of time and practice with our team there and from there um, be able to be ready for Earth Day and send out a live streaming video into um, deep space for next year. Yeah, you know, uh, Paradise, I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to mention uh, the, uh, the event, no doubt, this year. Uh, just a couple of months ago on Earth Day, because uh, that was a that was a profound event, uh, and you guys should be really proud that you uh, uh, that you pulled yeah. it, pulled it off. And you know, it was it actually got some mainstream press too. I actually saw a couple of blurbs in uh, AP, I think, covered it, and uh, uh-huh. it really, MSNBC.com, yes, Space.com. Right, so I mean that's huge, and uh, I just I just can't tell you how how much I congratulate you for it. You guys should be really proud of it. So thank you. Um, we were pretty stoked about it, and it's, you know, it's like, I guess partly to say to the audience that it's important for everybody to have their dreams, mm. and to keep modifying and growing their dreams, and seizing the opportunity. This year for Earth Day, all of a sudden, it became possible, because Deep Space Network Communications came online, and there are others around that kind of work as well, um, but they came online, and now we have the live whale songs to whalesong.net. And uh, we have the Earth Day event, and we have the opportunity to bring it all together. Hmm. And, you know, that's the dolphin message, collaboration, podliness, um, people being inspired and finding out what we can do with each other. Right. You know, and it's no, uh, uh, it's, it's no accident, uh, Michael, that, that their language, uh, at least to me, it doesn't seem like an accident that their language would be... Uh, as sophisticated as it is, because I think about language, you know, and you and I have talked about this before, but language, uh, human language, is something that uh, is sort of taken for granted, uh, but it is uh, our method of communication, and and so far, it's been nothing more than sort of a nice idea. Uh, we we have we have not really pushed the envelope of communication and language uh, to the point. Uh, obviously, to where the dolphins have, and 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 I and I think at the root of many, many, many of the problems on this planet, uh, they come down to language uh, and and to communication. So really relevant and important stuff, I think. Yes, I think it's important to know that there's other species on the planet that have language, much like we do, and perhaps better. Looks like it's better. Something like 40 times the sound rate. And um, um, yes. <laughs> Um, one thing that the musical interface turns into is what we call the song swimmer interface, where you can sing a song while swimming. That's the sort of idea. Okay. That seems to be what the dolphins do. They they put out what what the aboriginals might call song lines. You know, as they swim, they're singing, and the humpbacks, for example, are responding to cues from the entire ocean basin while they navigate and swim and sing. And um, anyway, uh, with this kind of pitch tracking technology. If you had something like the language of Hawaiian, which has only 14 basic sounds, okay. and the dolphins were able to hit 14 pitches, and those pitches would be recognized by a computer and assigned to a given phoneme, like a, e, o, u, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Need uh, some fricatives, I call them, <laughs> things like that. Right. And 
So if the dolphins sing the right order of pitches, they could say things like aloha hmm. through a speech synthesizer. They could speak at least as well as Stephen Hawking. <laughs> right, right, right. So, and, uh, so processing speed is one of the things that has limited this in the past, and maybe now that's becoming less of an obstacle? That's correct, yeah. Yes. Uh, Lily did something similar to this uh, called the Janus Project about 1973. Right. And right. it was right at the limit of what they could do then. And now it's gotten reasonably straightforward to do. Hmm. Like the vocalizer pitch tracker that we're using is a hardware software instrument that you can... Well, it's out of production now, but when it was in production, it was like a $500 device. And it was something that took thousands of dollars and lots of work for Dr. Lilly to do in the early days. I mean, when they first started, they only had PDP-8s and Ampex um, instrumentation tape and right. rather slow computers. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> something, even the best they had was roughly an, uh, the equivalent of an Apple II. Right. So um, we've come a long way, and so a lot of the things that Dr. Lilly developed are now pretty much off the shelf, and we can go forward from here. All right, so, um, so how far along are you? Well, as I say, we just had another opportunity to test the speaker and hydrophone rig, and we had a wonderful fellow named Marshall, who uh, a musician who also had some uh, music gear. So we've gotten almost to the point of being able to, to do what we call the signal subtraction that we have to do. You have to take the signal from the speaker out of the hydrophone incoming signal. And that's the tricky part that we've yet to quite have perfected. Okay. I think on the next round we'll have it. Wow. And then, and uh, then we'll have, then we can have a full musical interaction without feedback and things like that. Okay. And, uh, so once, once that becomes capable, can music, can music be used then somehow as a Rosetta Stone or something? Of, is, maybe that's not a good analogy. I don't know. That's a, that's a very good analogy. Uh, the Rosetta Stone worked because we still had living speakers of Greek. Right. Um, we do have living speakers of Dolphin, and therefore the proper way for them to teach us is for them to teach us. So we make us, at least my view is, you make a sound-powered operating system that allows them to run a computer that eventually allows them to operate things like the Internet even, mm -hmm. up to the point where they can show us what they think we ought to know. You know, we've always tried to impose these patterns on them like an artificial language. I'd like to give them an opportunity to create something that we ought to know. But the fundamental way to understand Dolphinese, say, is to have the dolphins tell you. Right. And I zero know of any way to figure it out otherwise, because Truby, who's a massively expert linguist, worked on the problem for 17 years, and his only real conclusion was that it was a totally different pattern than any language that the humans have, hmm. although it was a language. So without them to help us, I think it's very difficult to decode. It might take us years to never... <laughs> But since they're here, and then if we got an intermediate human language going that's simple like Hawaiian, mm -hmm. relatively simple like Hawaiian, we can go from there. Right. And, and, and the, the hard part is, is, is this early stage, is getting the sort of foundations built, the, the building blocks of language, because it is absolutely alien. I mean, it is yeah, ET. To both of us. Right, right, to both of us. So, on, the other hand, on the other hand, so many people talk about... Uh, their empathy and telepathy between mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. I think this will ultimately be the, one of the keys because we can get there with it. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, Paradise, I'd like to mention yes, this please. to you, but 
you know, during... Hang on. Hey, Paradise, are you there? Yes, uh-huh. I wanted to ask you a question about something that, uh, is that, that I've been thinking about since our last conversation. I've had a number of sort of vision, dreams, whatever you want to call it, sometimes not necessarily sleeping, but anyway, experiences with um, orcas in particular. And, uh, you know, I'm not anywhere near the ocean. And uh, I've sort of made effort to do it, quite frankly, uh, to try to, to, you know, to sort of test the waters and experiment with some sort of personal techniques on uh, telepathy and this sort of thing. Uh, but anyway, with the orca, at least, I mean, maybe I'm crazy, but I swear to God that I that I have had some relatively interesting experiences. And is there, again, is there a basis for this? Am I nuts, or 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 is telepathy something that is um, uh, happening with these with these uh, dolphins and whales? Well, um, first, I like to invite people to ask questions where they can get a yes answer. <laughs> So um, to language sculpt your question, am I nuts, to am I sane, then I can say, yes, you are sane. All right. So it starts with how we ask the question of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Because um, experiences like what you're describing are traditional, let's say. They're cross-cultural. They cross time and space. These are part of shamanic experiences and cultures throughout the world with many numbers of the animal kingdoms. So um, the orcas, uh, having lived in British Columbia for many years, I'm really close to the orcas, and I was adopted or hanaid by a man who, when he was a child, um, Father Joseph Washington, um, was taken by his grandfather out to a pod of orcas when he was like two or three years old and left there in the water with him. And then grandfather's um, brought the boat back, and after a while, um, Father Joseph was brought back with the orca, by the orca, rather. Wow. So, to answer your question, you are saying your experiences are, while they're rare, you know, there are six billion people on the planet, only a relative handful have dreams or experiences like this, but um, they're part of, like, let's say, an awakening and a reaching out at an interspecies level and across time and space, which is exactly, you know, a large part of the dolphin and the whale message. Right. And, you know, I, I would, my, my intuition is that, that it's not that I had this rare, special uh, uh, opportunity for this. It's just that I think that I actually wanted it and asked. I mean, okay. I, think, I think that's part, I mean, there are six billion people of them. How many of them are asking to talk to orcas? Right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> so maybe that's a part of it that, that, that we need to emphasize is that, is that these things are possible <clears throat> for, uh, for, uh, for, Joe, for Joe Natural, you know, whoever, mm-hmm. who, whoever you are. You, the, the potential lies within all of us to have these sort of experiences, I think. Yes. My first sense of that, or one of my earlier senses of that, came when I was on television in Vancouver in the early 80s. And um, a man happened to be in the studio with another lady I was interviewing and um, had time to interview him and it kind of blew my mind I was still kind of a novice in these things when he talked about telepathy in whales and that while you're in an airplane you could like tune into them and have a telepathic connection with them it's like wow <laughs> get down that was pretty exciting 
um, it just somehow crystallized something in me about what telepathy really was or what it meant or how it could operate. And um, oh. it's been a very integral part of my relationship with this cetacea and um, the rest of my life, really, since then. Well, you know, you made me think of something else, and uh, let, me, let me ask you something then. The, this idea of, of a more advanced uh, communication that, that Michael was just talking about, um, you mentioned, tele- we've been talking about telepathy here. Well, uh-huh. to me, it seems like human language, um, we, we're always talking about telepathy as, a, as if a, a mind-reading sort of an idea, but I think we, we sometimes overlook the fact that we kind of have a sort of telepathy. It's just that the carrier wave happens to be little mouth noises that you know that that, that, that we create. And, and but I mean, really, that's what happens is that I make you know uh, I, I basically download a thought from my brain or or my mind or whatever into my uh, vocal uh-huh. uh, cords and and then create a, a a little small mouth noise that moves across acoustic space and then enters the ear of the listener and then if their dictionary matches my dictionary they can reform my thoughts basically right and and so it is sort of telepathy but we just use this this vocal way to do it and i think that the advance of that is what's required it's not it needs to be pushed further this this communication First, and, and the original, like in the original Paradise Myths and Legends, mm-hmm. telepathy was how life communicated. All of life uh, communicated telepathically with all of life. Our fall from that state of grace, if you will, um, partly maybe came with like the Tower of Babel where language got in the way and especially in our common usage of the language where we have knots and this and not and that and all those confused words like illegitimate or unconstitutional are all confused words that make it hard for people to respond to the thought forms, to the pictures that someone is essentially wanting to communicate. So the dolphins and their telepathy, as it reflects through me, is like I get pictures Mm. of what they're wanting to share, of what their communication is. And... I can just see like a whole stream of pictures all at once. But people can do this together. I see it happening here. Maybe it's because we're in Hawaii and maybe because we're close to the volcano and we hang out with dolphins and stuff. Um, But there's a lot of telepathy out here. Mm. And it's increasing because, you know, maybe it's um, getting easier for people to really experience that now. Interesting. Very interesting. All right. Well, look, uh, that's a good time to take a break. We're right at the top of the hour here. So um, let's do it. We'll come back. Hey, Michael, we've been talking yes. uh, off uh, uh, offline when, uh, over the last week or two about um, space travel and mm. colonization and ET and some of these other things that are, uh, when you when you start to look at them closely, really related to uh, some of the work that goes on with the dolphins. And the dolphins can be very helpful to us apparently in some of these areas. So um, we didn't touch on that too much last time. We've 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 done an hour here of all of uh, we've got some good background and talked about some good stuff. Let's come back and talk about uh, space travel and uh, right. and and colonization and how the dolphins might fit into that whole game and uh, cool. uh, yes. All right. Yes. Okay. Let's do that. We'll be back in a minute. And speaking about uh, uh, music being composed and uh, uh, and written with 
Cetacea. This is a wonderful piece of music. This is Lisa Walker, and uh, uh, she is a, uh, a violinist who plays her violin through a hydrophone and uh, records the songs of the whales as they respond to her playing. And she incorporates all that into her music. And she's a friend of mine as well, and she's uh, working on her second album right now. This first one uh, of hers, uh, the album is called Grooved Whale. And Grooved Whale is a, uh, another uh, name for the... Uh, what is it? Paradise? Grooved Whale is the gray whale? No, it's a uh, sperm whale. whale. Yeah. Um, I think so, yes. They call it the gray whale. Also, also called it Grooved Whale, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, looking at their configurations, yes, they have more grooves than the others. Um, the humpbacks are known as the angels of the sea and the um, songbirds of the sea, too. Wow. My phone is beeping. I'm going to have to let it go and recharge before it starts beeping us all over the place. Okay, no problem. We'll be back Aloha. in a few minutes here. Aloha. I'll be back. Okay, this is Lisa Walker from Grooved Whale. It's called Hawaii Groove. Check it out. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN. And if you're interested in uh, Dr. Heisen and Paradise's work, you can get to their website from my website at www.radioorbit.com. And uh, we'll be back in just a few minutes. Thanks for listening. KOPN, Columbia.
All right, hi, uh, this is Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN 89.5. And uh, that was Lisa Walker from Grooved Whale, and I think I'm just going to leave it on in the background, sort of light here for a while. It's so, so cool. So anyway, um, my guests are Dr. Michael Heisen and Paradise Newland, and we're on the line with them from the Sirius Institute in Puna, Hawaii. And we've been talking about dolphins and intelligence and communication and language and all of these things, and uh, we're going to get back and talk about some more stuff. So uh, if you're interested in it, uh, first of all, you can get to them on the web at www.planetpuna.com, and uh, you can also get there from my website at radioorbit.com. So, all right, you guys uh, still with me here? Yes. All right, good. Um, Michael, as I said before the break, uh, I've been really interested in uh, this whole idea of getting off planet <laughs> and uh, uh, it's been more and more toward the front of my uh, of my mind of late and it seemed like a good time to talk with you ab- about it because I know that's something that uh, uh, I know that dolphins have been a big part of your life and something that you've always wanted to do but I know that space travel has been a big part of that as well and um, I think yeah. you're you're a you're a, uh, a real value when it comes to finding out about what's happening these days, what's the state of the art, and uh, what does it mean for the near future for us. So maybe we can kind of talk about that a little bit for a while. Yes. Um, I'm, I've always been interested in space. I think um, the first inspiration was uh, when Bernard Von Braun, Heinz Haber, Willie Lay, mm. and Collier Magazine all put together this uh, um, cartoon series about 1954 or so for Disney where they had this little winged rocket that made it to the, around the moon. And um, I remember this uh, cartoon of a guy creating a martini in orbit, you know, with with a blob of, of gin just sitting there with a toothpick and olives spinning in it and things like that. <laughs> anyway, I was I was jazzed. <laughs> and uh, then later got to watch all the early Mercury and Apollo programs right, take right, off right. on the TV and things like that. Mm-hmm. I was fascinated. So when I later got to Florida, I, even got to see uh, Saturn V's go from three miles away, uh, Apollo 16 and Apollo 17. It was just amazing. Wow. <laughs> the 17 went at night. <laughs> uh, 10,000 cameras looked at it as it went. It was like the most amazing torch you've ever seen. My gosh. It rattle, rattled the ground. So, in a sense, I got imprinted on rockets. So, uh, when I got up, uh, the dolphin work that had happened since, uh, well, about 1970 to 1976, um, had ended, and I left Florida and went to California, headed for the uh, Caltech, California Institute of Technology. Yeah, you did. Postdoc. Didn't you do some work for? Uh, I know you you did some work for NASA. Actually, you did some yeah, work for that's JPL. Yeah, I got into this. And I started out uh, working at California Institute of Technology as a postdoc on studying brain waves and eye movements. But about eight miles away, there's a place called Jet Propulsion Laboratories. Also known, I'm told, as uh, Jack Parsons' lab. <laughs> That's right. Um, but anyway, uh-huh. the Propulsion Labs is very close to Caltech, and I, I ended up talking to those people during my postdoc, and uh, ran into a one wonderful lady named Eleanor Helene, who now has about a hundred asteroids to her credit, hmm. where she has made the discovery photograph and plotted their orbits. And she works out of Jet Propulsion Labs. And she happened to know all the space colony people, Gerard O'Neill, Brian O'Leary, um, um, Henry Colm, right. all these guys. 
and it was at the time when the L5 Society was still going. Do you know of that? Yeah, I'm uh, vaguely familiar with it. Okay, well, very very quickly, there was Carol and my, Carolyn and uh, Keith Henson uh, from Arizona, who started what's called the L5 Society, whose uh, goal was to disband on the first space colony at the Lagrange Point Five, which would be mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 60 degrees ahead of the moon in in the direction of its orbit. Mm -hmm. It's a, it turns out to be a stable gravitational place where you could put something big like a colony, and it would stay there and fly formation between the moon and the Earth. Cool. So they started the L5 Society, and I got involved in all that. And as part of the postdoc, I had a one-day conference called the Caltech the 1978 Caltech Space Settlement Conference. If you go to Planet Puna, put a forward slash HYSON, and hit return, that gives a number of papers, one of which is the Space Colony Conference. I've got scans of the pages there, and several people from Jet Propulsion Lab, and several people all the way from MIT, uh, from Princeton, and other places came all the way to Caltech for that day and gave a summary of what was going on with the space colony business. And from that, I learned that it's all rather straightforward. We just have to decide to do it. Hmm. We know how to grow plants. We know how to get it there. Um, there was going to be an industry of making solar power satellites. Uh, to supply Earth with solar power from space, because in space you can collect solar power without clouds or right, night. Right. So it becomes a 24-hour quantity. Um, with efficient rockets that are launched for like $5 a pound, you could build huge devices uh, 20 miles long, a mile across, um, holding anywhere from 10,000 to 200,000 people. You could build something big enough to sculpt the entire valley of San Francisco, including the Golden Gate in there, inside. <laughs> so we could have quite roomy colonies with forests and so on. So that's what got inspired me at the time. And uh, having heard all these people for their, their day of presentations, I was convinced we could certainly do it. And we could get 98% of the resources from the moon, and the other 2%, if you wanted, could come from the asteroids. Hmm. And it turns out it was reasonable to get asteroids. It was reasonable to get lunar material. And in the long run, we'll, we'll run out of easily available resources here. And 99.9999999, however many nines you want to put on it, of all the universe's resources are somewhere else besides here. You know, we're just a small planet. So it was very inspiring to learn we could do all this. Interesting. All right. All right, so that was uh, some 30 years ago almost, right? Yeah. All right, so uh, what, what has happened along the way? Has it been... Well, uh, um, just to briefly catch up, um, at least for me personally, uh, after I went to work for uh, uh, GCH Astronautics that blew up the first private rocket in the United States and then later worked for Jet Propulsion Labs on what we called electrostatic levitation and containerless processing for about eight years. And I got to fly zero-g parabolas. So that was very exciting. Had a great time doing that. Wow. And we ran a little control system that would hold a drop of water in space or in zero-g uh, using an Apple II. And we could do things like spin it and freeze it and burn it and all sorts of things you might want to do as an industrial process. It sounds like something that the dolphins do, actually. It just reminded me of what they can do with sound and electric waves. Oh, yes. <laughs> We can get to sonal fusion a little bit later. Okay. All right. Sorry to no, interject. Just sorry. reminded me of that. So, okay, go on. Yeah. But, uh, so, very quickly, um, the Challenger uh, blew up, which uh, set back my plans with regard to NASA about 10 years. And mm. about this time, Gary Hudson got funding for 
a vehicle we called the Phoenix, which was going to go single stage to orbit, very efficient rocket, and take 20 people to orbit, or 20,000 pounds, or some 40,000 pounds to the moon and back, and refuel in orbit and so on. So I worked with him as a research director for about two years, and we got some distance. We almost got hot fire out of one of our uh, test engines, and it was quite an adventure to be a research director to a private rocket company. Wow. We convinced the Air Force that it would work, and then they started the DC, what became known as the DCX project with McDonnell Douglas. They basically um, cut our company out of the game. That's kind of a long story, but that's what happened. And McDonnell Douglas ended up making what we called our mini Phoenix design, more or less, mm-hmm. and it flew out of white sand. Really? Um, yeah, and we got to go see it. So even though we had been basically as a company cut out of the game, everybody knew how much work we'd done to do that. So they invited us as VIP press. Is that right? Yes. And uh, I'll, <laughs> I'll pass you to paradise in a moment because we got to go to White Sands with Tiger and uh, see the uh, rocket fly, DCX fly. And wow. Paradise got to meet the head of NASA. It was quite fun. I thought you might want to throw part of that story in. Okay, shoot a little. All right. But it was a great trip, and we did get to see the DCX fly. And she was had four RL-10 engines, upper stage engines from the from the Apollo stack. Right. Um, and she had four of them, and she had software that was uh, uh, pirated from a Harrier jump jet. So as one of the people said, deep down in, the, in its heart, it thinks it's a Harrier jump jet. <laughs> and um, they were able to, to fire it. They were able to fire it, take it up to, say, 10,000 feet, and let it hover then turn the engines off completely, let her fall for a while, restart the engines, hover again, and land on its tail. No. Like God intended. Really? <laughs> That's pretty beautiful. Wow. That was really beautiful. And when was this? Hmm? When um, was this? This was in the spring of, like, what, 1995, I think? That or? sounds about right. All right, so ten, so ten you years. You'll see some references on the web to the DC. Oh, yeah, we have the rocket. pictures of it, Michael. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right, all right. No, I just want to get a time frame because I'm always curious about technology and what you know, what's really in play and what we know about and what we don't know about, and you know, just general time frames give me an idea for that sort of thing. So, wow, very interesting. So we demonstrated that. I mean, well, at least between our work and McDonnell Douglas, we demonstrated the single stage to orbit would work, hmm. and that was the best of the rockets. All right, and so okay, so from that point. As you say before, it's just a matter of then building it. Yes, uh, and we could do that. Um, what happened in the history is uh, Lockheed went on to build something called um, the, um, um, let's see now, what was it called? Um, the X-33. Hmm, yeah. They spent about a billion and a half and did it wrong and tried to prove to everyone that single stage would never work. <laughs> And that's where it stayed. Okay. And I think my personal opinion is that uh, NASA and everybody considered the single-stage rockets too much competition to their existing rockets, and they quietly killed it off. Hmm. Sounds like a familiar story. Yeah. So that was kind of the end of my rocket involvement, and that's when I got into the dolphin work out here again. Okay. That's when I recruited him. Dolphins came along and saw him and said, we want you. Right. And just before I met Paradise, I happened to have met a dolphin named Dreamer, who I uh, swam with all night. And a year later, after I met Paradise, the dolphin Dreamer fixed my neck with her sonar. 
So it confirmed my path for the while. Yeah, that's He's a, ours for now. That's a story that, uh, that that we should tell real fast. I actually have a couple of friends that are uh, in the studio here tonight, and and when you said uh, fixed my neck, one of them just went, huh? <laughs> so why don't you tell quickly how that happened, because that's it's a great uh, personal uh example of uh, of at least an experience somebody can say what they think happened when the dolphin yeah. was, was actually working on them well partly just to show how how these different levels and synchronicities blend together uh i had been re- uh, recruited in a sense by another dolphin researcher roxanne kramer to go to brazil and as part of that i was asked to go to florida to do a check swim with the dolphins so two days before i showed up at dolphins plus i had a very bright, lucid dream about swimming with a dolphin underwater in the dark. Hmm. It was very powerful. Two days later, at Dolphins Plus, I met this dolphin that was very interested in me, even though I'd yet to ever meet her. And at one point, I was looking at her eyes and realized that she was the one in the dream. So this uh, got my attention. So briefly, I um, um, went back to see her about somewhere in the night, and we ended up swimming together all night and learning a lot about each other. My God. And then uh, that got me so inspired, I went to see uh, John Lilly at his birthday party, 75th birthday party mm-hmm. in 1990. Mm-hmm. Paradise and Tiger were there. Paradise and Tiger were living there. Uh, their colleagues, Paradise and John. We started the, uh, uh, made the Serious Institute a formal entity and started doing the work. And we've been pretty much working together ever since. And, uh, and Dreamer did something during, the, oh, during yeah. that and then, experience. Uh, uh, roughly a year later, we were back in Florida for another dolphin conference, and I got to see Dreamer again. Now, when I was 12, I hurt my neck diving into a swimming pool, and it compressed 6th and 7th cervical vertebrae in my neck. And they stretched my neck for about eight weeks with a collar, and it was pretty much all right. However, when I could turn my head and paid attention, I could always hear some gravelly sound grinding away down there. Sounds like my knees. Ah. So toward the end of our swim, our second swim together uh, this year, 1990, with Paradise there too and so on, um, Dreamer was about four feet away from me and put 20 sonar pulses into my head and neck. And at the time, I thought she was just looking at a fish a long way away. About one hour later, after I got out of my swim and was driving back to Key West where we were staying, all the muscles on the left side of my neck relaxed. My back got hot in four or five new places. And then right after that, three vertebrae clicked into new positions. I could feel them move and hear them click. And then when I turned my neck, it felt like it had been oiled. All the gravel sound was gone. I think she at least polished a bone spur off of whatever was clicking and grinding down there. My neck has been better ever since. Incredible. Actually, I won't use the word incredible. I have to try to use language scoping like like, uh, Paradise is teaching me. That's right, Michael. Right? That's amazing or remarkable or wow, what a wonderful story. Good for you. Yeah, (laughs) and incredible is a word that means basically not credible. Right. So So, uh, we want to use a positive word, like amazing maybe. Yeah. What about remarkable? That's a good one. Remarkable is good. All right. Good. Well, a remarkable story, and and again, it's these it's these personal stories that really drive this stuff. I think because um, because you know, then yes, I mean you yeah. know. The personal experience with Dreamer was so deep and so profound. It just confirmed that a lot of things I 
had that I was thinking about were just confirmed. They do indeed heal. They are telepathic. She was able to warm me up with her sonar or whatever three different times when I got super cold. Things like that. Hmm. Wow. All right. Well, uh, the dolphins sort of play into the space game, though, too, don't they? Somehow there's got there's a connection there, and uh, maybe you could discuss that a little bit. Um, Michael can do the Dogon story, but I have dolphins in space um, through one of my screenplay outlines that I started writing years ago, which is how the Sirius Institute um, was initiated with their screenplay idea. And part of it had to do with um, these children who wound up going out into space to, um, to meet up with a craft from the dark side of the moon that was beaming signals to Earth, and these children had been raised in the water by dolphins for various reasons. And they were chosen to go meet the signals coming from the dark side of the moon. And turns out it was um, being generated through a number of craft, but the lead craft being um, with dolphins in it. And these children were, because they had been raised with extraterrestrial life, so to speak, it was felt that they would be perfect ones to meet extraterrestrial life. Mm -hmm. And so they're sent off into this expedition, and they come to meet the dolphins who are waiting for them them to come. <laughs> so we have a strong affinity for dolphins in space um, from the very beginning, and then Michael came along and was able to bring the rocket scientist into the mix, as well as the neurobiologist research director that he so exquisitely fulfills for us. Wow. Yes. Um, I'm, I've been interested in space, obviously, for a long time, and the dolphins, and the strongest first space connection between the dolphins and the whales was the uh, Robert Temple's book called The Serious Mystery. You may be aware of it. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. Yes, I am. Uh, yeah. I am aware of him. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Uh, anyway, he relates the, um, the legends of the Dogon right. in which they know that Sirius is a binary system. In mm -hmm. fact, they say it's a trinary system, mm -hmm. that there's three major bodies. Mm -hmm. Sirius A, which is the blue one we see. Right. Sirius B, which is a white dwarf that's too dim to see ordinarily. And Sirius C, according to the Dogon, orbits Sirius B. They call it Emiya, the planet of women. And Robert Temple got so intrigued by this because... Um, Basically, we only knew about it about 19, or, sorry, 1884, when we saw some um, positional wiggles in Sirius right, and concluded right. that a very heavy body was pushing it around or pulling it around. And, and, and it was before the dis the direct discovery of white dwarfs and so on. Michael, and, and and I don't think Sirius, I don't think that that it, that a star circling Sirius B has yet to be confirmed, or has it? Um, in a way, uh, Robert Temple says that in, in his second edition to the Sirius Mystery that about 1995 in the journal Astrophysics, uh, a, some authors decided that there were residual perturbations mm. in the Sirius B orbit right. that could best be explained by a third body orbiting B. Mm. Okay. If that is so, and it's yet to be confirmed, say, by the Hubble, but if that turns to be so, then the Dogon are proven right. Wow. Well, they've, so, been, they've, they've been proven right about a lot of other things, so... Yes, and they knew the orbital period of Sirius. And, I, mean, I mean, the orbital period of Sirius B, they knew it was heavy. They knew the uh, orbits were ellipses and so on. Mm -hmm. And when asked where this came from, they said that amphibious beings from Sirius landed and told them all that roughly 5,000, perhaps more years ago and gave them the arts of civilization briefly. And they revere these people and call them the uh, Nomo. Right, right. 
And um, so because of that, partly, if you look at that legend and just morph it a little bit, and the most intelligent creature in the sea we know of is the dolphin. Mm. Um, there are Indian legends, for example, that Vishnu's first incarnation was a dolphin and helped people after a big uh, tidal wave disaster, for example. Right. And so these stories, like the Dogon, go back to the Egyptian, the Greek, the Babylonian, and the, the Hopi. Chinese. And the Chinese, right. The Egyptians? The Egyptians have a place called the Valley of the Whales. That's right. So we have all these major civilizations saying that their civilization came when amphibious beings came from the star system Sirius and told them all these things. Hmm. And if you take that at all seriously, <laughs> there we are. Well, you know that, that that's been a that's been a subject of much controversy, you know, over 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 the years. This idea that uh, mythology, quote unquote. How do you take it? How do you interpret it? Is it real? And and it seems like for a long time the pendulum the pendulum had swung, um, you know, to the opposite side of that idea as just, it's just a bunch of dumb primitives, and uh, and none of this stuff really has any validity. But these days, there's a tremendous amount of information that is showing that our uh, ancestors and uh, even you know into the deep the high paleolithic or whatever you know uh uh but but even even to this day the current indigenous uh, communities and societies still exist as you know well and that uh and that these stories uh may very well be based in fact in many cases i think they are um when you look at when you really look at the pyramid very briefly it's 13 acres in area and it's the point of it is true to its center to within a quarter of an inch after however many years it's been standing there. Yeah, absolutely it's, amazing. It's, a sign, it's aligned north to south better than the Paris Observatory, mm -hmm. and there are huge blocks of machined granite that are 200 tons, which is right near the limit of anything we can pick up. And there are heavier things than that that were picked up somehow. Yeah, and, and they're and, laying around. Yeah, and they've got uh, you know similar situations with in in very strange architectural architectural positions like at the end of a box canyon for example you know uh, they'll have a stone that is a very large stone like you mentioned but with only access to it from one direction and mm -hmm. and, 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 and it, it seems absolutely impossible that they could have moved it to there, there's no way they could have had, had access to it to get it where it is so yeah lots of interesting things and you know um, I'll relate. It's 1.30 in the morning now, so let me relate a quick story to you with regard to this. We've hit on it a couple times, this idea of sound. Um, oh, yes. and, and sound being used as more than just a carrier wave for words. Um, and there's an, there, I guess it's sort of an apocryphal story, but uh, I have a connection to some Lakota people back in Colorado that I talk about now and again. And one of the one of my grandfathers, uh, who's no longer with us, unfortunately, his name was Grandfather Wallace Black Elk. And wow! He, oh, I met Wallace. Yes, and Wallace was an absolutely astounding man. If you met him, you know it. And uh, one day we were talking about uh, the pyramids, and we were talking about Egypt, and he said flat out to me, he said. Uh, First of all, he made a comment about engineers, and he said, you know, any engineer worth his salt, if you stand him there on the Giza Plateau and just look him straight in the eye and say, how in the heck did they do this, 
any engineer worth his salt will look at you straight back and say, I have no blanking idea. <laughs> and so uh, at any rate, he said uh, that he, uh, in their tradition, uh, had had been passed along a story of as to how that was done. And he says that, uh, that back in the day when those uh, incredible... Uh, uh, pardon me, Paradise. Those amazing structures were were, 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 were built. Uh, that that they had a particular technology that wasn't like technology that we talk about. But he called it a toning device, and he said it was like a whistle, and that using this particular device, they could actually levitate stone or anything really, and they could use it for cutting, for example, and make very precise cuts. And and it, it again, it uh, it. It seems to jive and dovetail with uh, some of these ideas that you guys were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Yes. Jane Roberts has a series of books about the education of Oversoul Seven, and uh, one of the future, one of the cultures, simultaneous time cultures, um, creates things with um, sounds like that and moves blocks around. And there's a really good description of that process in those two books: um, the education of Oversoul Seven and the further education of Oversoul okay. Seven. It's well, yeah. fascinating. Yep, that's what grand- Grandfather Wallace said. He said they built them. He said the way they did it, he said they didn't build them from the ground up. They built them from the top down. Duh. <laughs> <laughs> wow. There we go. Yep. Hey, Yoka's all of them, huh? Yep. <laughs> and he actually based that on engine. You know, he was a brilliant man, and he, and he, he said that he said the reason for that, that there was actually a technical reason behind it, that, that from, an engine, from a structural standpoint, that a, that a pyramid of those dimensions... Uh, and the weights involved, if it were built from the ground up before it was completed, it would it would collapse upon That's itself. And yes. so that so they had to build it from the top down. <laughs> oh, maybe that's how that's how the Templars started to build like the cathedrals. It's very very that possible. Was something about somebody... the um, the arcs, yes. the way they were designed, right. that it was like, how did they do this? How does this stay up there? Right, and <laughs> you, and you know the 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 uh, the Gothic cathedrals are. Uh, there, there's a there's a certain level of esotericism uh, with them, and they're they're in, in certain. If you're interested in alchemy, uh, the 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 cathedrals uh, are called books in stone, and yes. and and they're literally the secrets uh, of of alchemy are supposed to lie within uh, the architectural uh, the architecture uh, and symbology that's embedded right into the cathedrals in Europe, and uh, and I've been to some of them, which are absolutely amazing and if you if you yeah. get, once you get to familiar with some of the symbology involved then they get more and more interesting mm-hmm. you know it's crazy so anyway all right well back to uh back to our stuff actually we better take a quick break here you guys um we're going to take a break we'll be back in about five minutes and then we'll have uh 20 minutes or so to sort of finish things up and we can talk about anything you guys like uh, so um so chat it up while we're on break here and uh we'll okay. uh, we'll talk again in just a few minutes okay all right, this is Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN. And uh, my guests are Dr. Michael Heisen and Paradise Newland. We're talking about all kinds of different things, dolphins and communication and language and intelligence and extraterrestrials and space colonization. And we're going to come back and do a little bit more of that in just a few minutes here. Uh, in the meantime, this is an emotional fish. And this song is called Blue. We'll be back in just a few minutes. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN.
Hey, you listen to Radio Orbit on KOPN, and uh, we've got about oh, about 10 or 12 minutes left with my guest tonight, Dr. Michael Heisen in Paradise Newland. The time always goes so fast when we do these, I think, uh, and uh, we'll uh, get right back to him. Hi, you guys. Hi. Aloha. Aloha. All right. Well, uh, like I say, we've got uh, 10 or 12 minutes. What can we talk about at the end here to, to, uh, uh, to get some... Uh, um, to get some interest, uh, uh, some more interest 
in all the stuff we're talking about and get people interested in what you guys are doing and get people to the website and to get involved. And uh, uh, what do you guys think that... Uh, that we should talk about to finish things off here. Um, well, first, did we answer finish answering the questions from the audience from the last show? Yeah, the most. Uh, well, there w let's see. Let me check my notes here real fast. The first one was about uh, uh, was about the healing stuff. Oh well, and the and 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 the, and the second one uh, was about space. Was what was about how 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 do dolphins fit into the whole space travel thing? Because people were, I sort of used that as a promotion uh, uh, because I had gotten this question from a listener that said, you know, one of the things that Dr. Heisen mentioned last time was this thing about space travel. I'm really interested in how dolphins could fit into that whole thing. Maybe we could uh, touch on that for a few minutes. Well, um, we've just returned from a conference called uh, Dolphins and E.T. Civilizations, and they had a baker's dozen of uh, speakers that you can get to from our site. We have a link to the conference, and they have links to each of the websites of the speakers. Okay. And basically, when I started the Space Colony um, efforts, I had thought of the universe as being empty. And now, it looks like it's filled with extraterrestrial life. <laughs> and um, people like Stanton Friedman especially present that case and there was an author there particularly named um, Alfred uh, Webry who has written a book called Exopolitics mm. in which he argues that we we must understand that the universe is filled with intelligent life and it's time for us to interface with it and dolphins are that interface to start with and also, um, we were able to share with him about the Cetacean Commonwealth, our growing organization which brings together people like ourselves who want to speak and act on behalf of the Cetacea, as well as what we call the Cetacean Nations um, through Douglas Webster and Joan Ocean and others. So uh, together we can help secure their legal rights and things like this. Okay. Um, he was very excited about this, as I mentioned, and has offered steps to us to bring um, our program, our petition, our proposal to a big organization um, uh, meeting in Vancouver next uh, June. I believe it's the World Peace Organization. It's going to be a mega meeting in Vancouver as well as okay. a meeting of um, cities and um, uh, municipalities, like thousands of people are converging on Vancouver, which is where I've lived for 20 years and where this all got um, birthed, if you will, for me. <laughs> So we're going to be developing a program, a protocol that will help us formalize this and help us act at a global level now and even uh, off-planet level, if you will, to help um, gain their recognition and secure their, um, their standing as an ancient, sentient culture, extraterrestrial for sure. All right. Really neat stuff. You know, Michael, uh, you, you remind me of something again about this idea that the that the galaxy or the universe or at least our local corner of it is quite possibly filled with uh, with with life teeming with life so to speak and and you know i've i've always thought that there's sort of the common idea that even you know scientists say we're made of stars right the atoms in your body uh some time ago were the atoms that may have been in alien stars right and that's sort of an agreed-upon idea. Absolutely. And what, what I think about that is that if you extend that a little bit further, in other words, if, if, if the atoms in your body could possibly be from alien stars, well, then they could also be from alien planets and, <laughs> a, a, you know, alien 
thing. So, so I, thinking, Michael. <laughs> so I think that you know, it's, yeah. So to me, it's like biology. I don't think that the galaxy is a hindrance to biology. I think that human biology is a hindrance to understanding biology in the in the universe. And maybe we're getting over that now. I think you're absolutely right. Especially after this weekend, I, I met many people that had had their own extraterrestrial experiences, and telepathy and things like that are are common. So there's a great overlap between the kind of experience people have with other extraterrestrials and the kind of experiences we've had with dolphins. Interesting. Well, I tell you, it sure feels like uh, uh, that that sort of the old reductionist humanist ideas of science are giving way uh, to to some of these. Uh, uh, these new old ideas at last. at last and i think that it really i i really am starting to see cracks in the armor i really am right. one thing that was mentioned by several of the speakers um, was to the effect that if we truly want first contact more official um, universal first contact it's important for the people we the people to put that thought form out that intention out that open welcome mat out for them to come and to participate and to meet us because you know for many of us for many years there has been a sense that we do have ohana or family out there somewhere just like some kind of deep sense um, yet to even be articulated maybe just some feeling that there's something somewhere beyond that's important to us very very important to us and uh, what if what if it is our cousins and our relations somehow that we're just, you know, like a little far away right now, but pretty soon we'll be able to get back and forth right. and we'll be able to connect with each other. And what an amazing reunion this will be. Mm. And when we bring along the, our other relations, the people of the sea, the dolphins and the whale, what a most amazing celebration to have all of our parts, if you will, um, together in our hearts in one time and one place. I feel it'll be a universal delight a universal um, major accomplishment. Wow, you know uh, the 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 idea of the of the dolphin in space as a partner uh, for a human is making more sense to me the more I think about this tonight too, as we talk about communication. Because if we do encounter other life forms, biological life forms, as opposed to you know uh, spiritual angels or something like that in our heads, but but uh, you know literally. Uh, creatures that we uh, come in contact with, if they too have a language, it seems to me that that the dolphins, because of their because of the the, the development of their language, they might be a much better uh, prosthesis for helping us to understand an alien language because they understand more deeply what language really is and they're able to communicate much more accurately than we can so far with our sort of primitive language as we've talked about so far tonight. Maybe they can help us as translators or something like that. The babble fish, the babble dolphins, we'll yeah, call them from the Hitchhiker's the Guide to the Galaxy. That's really beautifully articulated, by the way, Michael. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. It reminds me of Lily saying that since the dolphins and whales were the major sentient species until humans arose, that it's very likely they've been in communication with all the all the ETs for millions of years already. Right, right. And I think that could easily be so. Well, you've made it clear that they can communicate via radio wave, and that they can uh, that they've that I, I know that we've actually had some uh, cases of uh, dolphin or whale signals being picked up via satellite. 
Oh, yes, exactly. Um, and here, Michael can address that. Hold on a sec. Okay. Oh, yes. Um, we had an informant who told us he'd seen a preprint of a paper in which uh, they had detected radio emissions from the sperm whales from the Vela 9 satellites in orbit. So um, wow. uh, we've yet to see that paper. Hmm. But it seems uh, quite likely since they have about a 550-gallon melon. Amazing. A lot of sound power. They could put out a lot of radio. Hey, uh, in the last minute here, let me ask you a, qu a quick, quick, quick question about sort of... Uh, the geopolitical climate and this sort of thing. Are you uh, are you having difficulty with any of this work because of the implications of what some of this stuff means, or or, or are you pretty much uh, on your own to do your thing and you don't feel any pressure or somewhere in between? Or? We're, we're pretty much on our own and we've been doing well and we've been well received and well honored. Um, I guess perhaps the general population it may seem like a far out sort of occupation. Mm. However, having come from this conference, we uh, are in good company, and it feels very much like we are at a takeoff point. Wow. So the, about the only thing remaining for many of us is to just get, um, you know, more enough, sufficient funding and dollars mm. and support mm. to do all this. All right. It's uh, perhaps difficult because it's a new kind of profession. Um, well, you know, but it's, uh, as I mentioned all the time now, you know, the the ideas that have been promoted for so long uh, in Western culture and in, in, they just are not working. And maybe there was a time when they worked better than they do now, and I can appreciate that. But the problem is that now they're not working any longer, and we need uh, new ideas and new options uh, in order to uh, continue this adventure without... Uh, Without making it really ugly for a, for a, for a big big percentage of us, yeah. um, so I am fully with you, and I think that people uh, who are concerned about their support for something like this that may seem, as you put it, you know, a little out there on the fringe or something, well, that is where the answers lie. That is where the answers lie, and that's where our support needs to go strongly. And I. Uh, I, uh, I fully support all the work that you guys are doing there, and it's been astounding up to this point, and I know it's just going to get better and better. Right. I did want to mention that we've also met people that are working on free energy, new kinds of propulsion, That's right. black hole theory, remote theory. Yes, uh, star, star children and crop circles. A uh, fellow named Robert, who's uh, built Robert Nichols, that had a beautiful film about all the crop circles and the messages that they come up with having to do with tetrahedral geometry and hyperdimensional physics and angular velocity and all this, which all points to the kind of ancient knowledge that they use to build the pyramids mm -hmm. and which our friend Nassim Haramein has recreated and is now getting reviewed in uh, physical journals. And he's about ready to start on work that would result in things like a desktop black hole and, and um, propulsion, perhaps. Yes, and uh, boy, it's unfortunate we don't have time to talk about uh, that quantum neurobiology uh, paper that you sent me earlier because some of the, the implications of what I read in that just seemed to me to be absolutely profound. So, um, Along those lines, there was a speaker named Courtney Brown who talked about technical remote viewing that he's been doing, and he's basically got uh, evidence now that the multi-world hypothesis is right. For example, you review, re, um, you remote view an event in the future, then you, based on that, you go back and change something so the event in the future that you saw fails to happen. <laughs> so then the question is, what is it that the remote viewer saw? 
And the answer is that he likely saw an alternate timeline. So that means there are many timelines, mm -hmm. there are alternates, and we can navigate among them. And um, I think he's got a physical model now that explains a lot of what might be called psychic phenomenon and so on. So, well, as they say, I think we're coming to a takeoff point where all this is coming together. Yeah, I think the number of options available is about to increase <laughs> considerably. So, all right, well, you guys, it has been an absolute pleasure, as always, and uh, we'll do it again. As uh, things move on, we're, we're making an effort to get uh, Nassim on the show. We've uh -huh. just had uh, a difficult time with communicate, communicating, quite frankly, uh, and uh, it's been as much uh, uh, my... Uh, issue as uh, as theirs, but I know that uh, he's very busy and there's a lot going on in his uh, life right now. Yes, we're building a birthing boat together, which I is one of the other projects that. that we filmed with Mona Lisa Productions when they came over and um, filming um, a beautiful pregnant lady, his partner, Amber, and our friends with their four-month-old baby out in the ocean. Wow. Um, yeah, it was pretty exciting, so there's a lot going on in their world. All well. right. Well, uh, uh, please... Um uh, relate to him my apologies and we will get that worked out because I have a tremendous uh, uh, amount of anticipation to talk with him uh, just a matter of getting uh, getting the schedules and you know I was talking about it earlier on the uh, on the show tonight that I get so frustrated because I'm starting to have I have a lot of stuff to talk about and there's a lot I, and I, I only do the show once a week and uh -huh. uh, and I would do anything to be able to expand the format of the show to do it more than once a week. And right, that's why you have to come time, here, so. so we can have you here and we'll do it more than once a week. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we've come full circle, so uh, yes. <laughs> I think uh, we should uh, say aloha, and I will thank you again, and uh, good luck with your work. And for everybody out there, please uh, go visit uh, Michael and Paradise's website at www.planetpuna.com uh -huh. and uh, get interested and in, uh, uh, in the work that they're doing because it really is the forward-thinking sort of stuff that is going to help us out of this cultural uh, uh, disaster that we've sort of uh, found ourselves in now. So uh, we need new ideas, and that's what uh, you guys are all about. So I really we appreciate it. We do have new ideas. And one last thing, too. When people go to Planet Puna, we're really excited about something that's the fulfillment of um, project we've been developing since Planet Puna was born, too, just about um, almost nine years ago now. And it's live streaming video ah. of um, our friend Lola's open mic night. And oh, this really? has to do with um, getting ready also to do live streaming video concerts for Earth Day next year with the Cetacea. So now we have our first events going out live streaming video. And I was even having the thought that maybe one of our future interviews, Michael, um, we could do live streaming video at our end for your audience, huh. and um, you could pick up audio for um, the rest of it. What do you think? Yeah, it'd be wonderful. And and uh, there, there's a there's an ongoing project here at the station uh, that's that we're right in the middle of to uh, to upgrade all of our computer stuff too, and we'll be streaming within six months probably. So uh, so I'm real excited about that too. So all right. Let's do it. All right. Well, we 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 will do it. Uh, keep uh, keep pushing it forward, you guys, and keep pushing oh, the envelope. You, and uh, thank you so much for your support and kindness. Well, you're a great audience. Thanks for listening. You guys must be really forward-thinking people. Aloha. Yeah, I have a great audience, and they appreciate you guys as well. So uh, we'll talk soon, and uh, thanks again. Aloha. 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 All right, everybody, uh, this is Mike. That was uh, Dr. Michael Heisen and uh, his associate, Paradise Newland, and... Uh, uh, just a fantastic uh, couple of people doing wonderful work in Hawaii there at the Sirius Institute, and uh, we'll have them on the program again sometime.
Uh, hopefully not in the, the too distant future. In the meantime, we'll finish things up here with a little carbon leaf. This is called simply The Sea. And uh, come on back and listen next week. I'll have uh, Scott Stevens on the air with me. We'll be talking about uh, the weather and uh, weather modification and manipulation that may be possibly going on that Scott's interested in. And um, uh, we'll uh, do it up again, 11-2, every Monday, okay? Uh, stick around for the boogeyman. Curtis will be with you in just a few minutes. And in the meantime, this is The Sea. green.